welcome to another bonus episode. Today we'll be interviewing author Grady Hendrix, discussing movie adaptations, scary stories, and his new book. So lock arms with your best buddy and use your friendship to defeat Satan, because it's time for Frightful Failures! and welcome to another episode of Frightful Failures. I am your ghost host with the most, Zach Romero. Joining me, as always, is your ghost host with the most, Tien Guignol. And Tien, we have survived a gauntlet of uh, Halloween-themed attractions, and now Mm -hmm. we are settled in. The fire is not on because we are in the south, and it's a 1,000 degrees at all times, but we're cozied up with not only some excellent horror novellas and novels, but the man who has brought them to life, ladies and gentlemen, perk up your ear holes because joining us today at Frightful Failures is none other than Grady Hendrix. Grady, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for letting me squirm into people's ears. That's that's what we're here for. That's what we're that's what we're all about. Um, so this is going to be to to our uh, normal listeners. This is going to be a slightly different interview styling. Uh, see. Mr. Hendricks here has been on the book tour. He is uh, currently showcasing to the world the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which is excellent, by the way. Um, But he's been around the block a few times in terms of talking about books and writing and horror and da-da-da-da-da. He's been asked a thousand and one questions from every podcast interview on the planet. So we're going to try to not bore him. And we're going to just kind of just talk. We're just having, we're just three spooky chums just hanging out, just talking about movies and, and horror stuff and bumps in the night. That's that's what we're attempting. Will we annoy him? Probably. Is he going to say, I yes. don't want to answer that because I've answered it a thousand times? Who knows? It's a choose your own adventure story. That's right. That's right. And uh, what better place to start since we are, you know, genuinely a movie podcast than talking about some uh, remakes and adaptations? Because I know that, uh, Grady, you've expressed a lot of uh, strong opinions when it comes to uh, remakes or specifically American remakes, uh, bringing new things to audiences here. So I'm curious, just to get the ball rolling here, Stephen King adaptations... Your favorite, your least favorite. Yeah, you know, it's hard, right? Wow. I also, I don't know, what kind of opinion do people have that's not strong? I thought every opinion needed to be strong. Like, if it's not strong, why have it? Um, But Stephen King adaptation, I mean, you know, there's a ton. I mean, Carrie and The Shining are the two sort of gold standards. Uh, Well, actually, Carrie, The Shining, Stand By Me are kind of the gold standards. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to think of one I don't like. Well, I guess Dreamcatcher. That's a little boring. Okay. But it's, yeah. it's it's more fun than the book. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I like Dolores Claiborne. I like Misery. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the It movies, but they were fun for what they were. Um, I, so the new, the, 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 the new It you're not a big fan of? I mean, it was fine. It was just... Um, you know, the the problem for me with it, I thought updating it to the 80s was great. I thought a lot of things were really, really good. I just didn't understand the ending, which sort of turned. I mean, it's like a lot of movies, kind of the end turns into Event Horizon. You know, it's like there's a lot of CGI. 
and you're not quite sure what's happening exactly and you kind of don't care. Um, and, and that That's for me was true. the end of it. I mean, it's just like people floating in a big room. Okay. You know, I didn't even see the second one, which I probably should at some point when I've got five hours. You're, you're better off. <laughs> no, we it's, tricked it's you, okay, everyone. But, that's but the it, whole purpose of this episode, just to dunk on the It remake. That's that's why we're all here. <laughs> I mean, listen, I mean, there were parts no, of it that were fun. I mean, that slide projector sequence in the beginning. I just, I don't know. I, I such a good book, and I just wanted more. At the same time, it made a gazillion dollars, so good, good for it. It is pr- probably my favorite Stephen King novel, which I don't know. I mean, I, obviously, you've done the the Stephen the great Stephen King reread, and yeah, I don't sure know. You get did, great in there, <laughs> the great Stephen King reread. Um, did you? Uh, so I know, like, the, it's really interesting, and I highly encourage everyone to go and check out uh, Grady's list because not only did he do individual reviews of a lot of uh, Stephen King's books, which took a long time. I think you were saying that you started it when you were first signing the contract for Horror Store and then you ended it after My Best Friend's Exorcism was published. I ended it actually right after I won the Stoker for Paperbacks from Hell. So about a year after Best Friend's Exorcism came out and I just wanted to drop my award in there. <laughs> That's a, hey, it's a subtle plug, and he's holding it up right Was now. Is it We're subtle too? It's <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but but uh, yeah, beyond so doing years. those individual reviews, yeah, you also had um, a list that I found very entertaining, which was sort of uh, actually categorizing what are considered to be a lot of the Stephen King tropes and how many of his novels of the thirty-eight you read actually contain those tropes. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of received wisdom about Stephen King. Um, I, I, you know, oh, no one edits Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King can't write an ending. He doesn't remember writing Cujo because he was drunk. And some of that stuff that I think, you know, Stephen King said he didn't remember writing Cujo because he's drunk. I think he's kind of telling a better story than reality but maybe i don't know um but there was a lot more interesting stuff in there i mean you know looking at book length and looking at like how many of his books are about school teachers or writers you know an awful lot of them the ones set in maine as opposed to the ones not the ones that were told in the first person i mean i don't have the numbers in front of me but it was just really interesting to break it down that way you know the ones that ended with aliens it's a lot of them well, I was I mean, gonna like, say it it <laughs> under the dome. Uh, you know, unexpected aliens play a big part in Stephen King. Doesn't Dreamcatcher well, have aliens in it? Yeah, yeah it does, I was gonna say Dreamcatcher yeah. has aliens too. Yeah, it's. I, I think you even broke it down from what I recall from the ones that are aliens versus some type of extra dimensional creature. Some right, facet. Right. There's subgenres. There's subgenres. Yeah. Yeah. I was just oh, saying, yeah. but but Stephen King, you know, what is fact? What is lore? I think we can all hold hands and agree that the one story that is 100% true is that Stephen King was coked out of his mind when he was making Maximum Overdrive. That we can all agree upon as absolute yeah. fact. Which yeah, is he, a movie he, he I actually enjoy. Well, let's say we we actually went over it with a fine tooth comb on this very show uh, about the genius of that uh, that film and the ballsiness it takes to decide that one rock band is going to do your entire soundtrack for a film. That oh, is a yeah. gutsy move. Yeah. No, I think it's a lot. I actually think it's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I actually it's you know, I think that sometimes you wind up with a better adaptation than you do an original. And I actually think Maximum Overdrive is one of those cases. I mean, Trucks is a fine story, but like it's Maximum Overdrive is genius. I, I 
if you take nothing else away from this interview, take away that Max from Overdrive is in fact genius. Yeah, and yeah, we actually, have that on the record now. Yeah, exactly. There's actually I don't know if y'all know the blacklist. You know, it's that like L.A. thing where people oh the best unproduced screenplays as rated by agents and managers and oh yeah, yeah yeah yeah. So on the black, they they usually pick about thirty scripts each year. They're like, oh, these you should pay attention to. And there was one year where two of the movies were about the making. Two of the scripts were about the making of Jaws, um, which are really awful. Um, and then there was another <laughs> year where two of them were about Stephen King. One was like. I think it was called the Kings of Maine. It was like Stephen King's poor and it's sad, but then he writes his way to fame and fortune. And then there was another one about the making of Maximum Overdrive. And I think it was called like Maximum King. Um, And both scripts, surprisingly different screenwriters, both of them had an ending, which featured King really high or drunk or both being confronted and attacked, I believe by his fictional characters and then like defeating them and then sort of like finding within defeating like these characters, the courage to go on. Fascinating. Wow. Well, I think the I think the reason why those were, you know, ultimately unproduced is because we already saw that happen in the film Monkey Bone when Stephen King is in the <laughs> weird, like creative person nightmare jail. And he says that Cujo put him there. Clearly, we already right. crossed that bridge. We don't need to exactly. revisit it. That's the whole reason. So, um, okay, so another... I have a question. Uh, yeah, I got sure. a question okay, right here, right here for the press, right here. Yes, uh, yes, so, Zach. So, Grady, you know you've written some really incredible work, and I, I know for some of them you've already kind of been tiptoeing making them into potential films yourself. Uh, not yourself, but a studios coming to you and saying you're the man, and here we go. So, when we look at something like The Shining, is that is the juice as a writer? Is the juice worth the squeeze in that front? Because you know Stanley Kubrick took Stephen King's work and was like, mm, "I like this, I like this, I don't like this, I don't like this," and basically did his own reinterpretation of it, to which Stephen King famously did not appreciate. Um, right. So in 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 going into having a story and having a studio interested in it, does that sit in your mind at all? Do you watch The Shining and go, "Hey, this is a great movie," but they did. Stephen King dirty like how let's dive into that a little bit yeah no I mean I really like The Shining I like the book I like the movie I think they're both two really really different stories um but no I mean to me if you're the writer of the book the only thing you can sort of control is um well, and sometimes you can't even control that, but making sure they hire good people. And after that, it's out of your hands. I mean, no sure. one wants someone backseat driving, especially the writer of the book. So, you know, to me, it's like, oh, Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson, that's a dream team. Like, sure, go for it. You know, like, I, and I think they turned out a great movie. Um, I think King has a lot of problems with it for personal reasons. Um, you know, I think that, like, it was a time in his career where he was really, um, feeling pretty put upon by the intelligentsia and the critical community. And here was Diane Johnson, who was sort of an academic writer and um, a member of the critical community and uh, Stanley Kubrick, who he thought was over intellectualizing it. And, you know, it was a book that's really personal to him. I mean, the book really is a nightmare scenario, right? I mean, it's about a struggling English teacher trying to write a book and then that's King's life. And instead of becoming rich and famous, he winds up abusing his kids and trying to kill his family. I mean, it's sort of like King's nightmares come to life. So I mm-hmm. get the personal uh, feeling. But to me, Jesus, 
zombie Stanley Kubrick and, and Diane Johnson are going to adapt something. Like, good. Faya Condillo. See you at the premiere. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever the problem wake is up it's in a not cold... always Stanley Kubrick or Diane Johnson? Well, do you ever wake up in a cold sweat that you're going to have to be like King was with Pet Cemetery 2 and like bring in litigation and be like, you take my name off of this. I had nothing to do with this. Um, no, but I mean, I think, you know, no one wants the writer to be unhappy, but at the same time, they don't really care a whole lot when push comes to shove. So, you know, you just kind of keep your head down and and look at the final product. And I haven't gotten to that point yet, so I don't have that problem. Um, And then with stuff like Horror Store, I'm doing the screenplay myself. And so, you know, I can at least, you know, one of the things that astonishes me is reading pitches or um, screenplays for stuff where they've just kind of missed the engine. Like, they're going to do different things. I mean, they're going to change the time period. They're going to change the setting. They're going to change a lot of stuff. Usually, hopefully, you know, it doesn't matter. But there's that essential story engine in there that's like, if it doesn't work, then nothing else works. Or or it's not what it's set out to be. So, you know, I've read versions of Horror Store that just weren't... I was confused as to why they optioned Horror Store. You know, it, it had very little to do with with the book. And and that's fine. I mean, you know, make your own thing. But I was like, well, why why have the Horror Store connection then? If it's going to if it's going to be so off base, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, if it's going to be so and it's not even off base, but like everything works for a reason. Right. Like the heart mm-hmm. of Jaws is there's a shark chasing and eating people and the chief of police who's scared of water has to kill it. Like, you know, there's an essential like sort of log line, simple pitch engine that drives most books and and movies and stuff and especially books. And it's like, if you miss that, what's the point? You know, everything, if you get it, you can change as much as you want. I mean, as long as you got that my best friend's exorcism is about um, two girls for in high school who are best friends and whose friendship's strong enough to beat Satan. Like, you can change the time period. You can change genders. You can change almost anything. So you're saying that you read options for Horror Store that were so far off base that you wondered if they had even read the book? No, no, no. They'd clearly read the book, but they just didn't seem to get what it was about because Horror Store is a haunted house ride through a haunted Ikea. Like, that's it. It's that's all it is. Um, And it's fun, I think, I hope. Um, But that's what it is. But if you start bringing in things like, oh, it's about a cult from Germany that, you know, and drug addiction and all this other stuff, it's kind of, well, wait, those are cool things to make a movie about. But that's not horror store. Like, you know, why why use the name? Mm. So I just feel like, you know, I don't care what someone does with an option, with an adaptation, as long as they get that essential engine right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like what ultimately at the end of the day can be summed up in like a sentence, as long as that's still on key. Yeah. Then I mean, everything else is just sort of window dressing. Yeah. I mean, look at Friday the 13th. Jason can kill teenagers in Manhattan. He can kill teenagers on a boat. He can kill teenagers in space. He can kill them in his in Freddy's dreams. But as long as the essential engine of it works, it's still Friday the 13th. They're like pizza on a bagel. You can do them anytime, anywhere. It's... <laughs> yeah, as long as you've got the tomato sauce and the cheese. Yeah, right? absolutely. True, okay. Well, uh, so Zach did kind of land on uh, exactly what I was going to ask you, which is, I think it's interesting with Stephen King's famous reaction to The Shining. I actually, I mean, to kind of build off of that, so let's see, It Chapter 1, and I think Call Me By Your Name came out both in 2017, or maybe Call Me By Your Name came out in 2016, but both of those 
I think had a really strong artistic vision for the film that didn't necessarily have to use every bit and piece and every plot point that the novels had. And so I think kind of alongside Stephen Kubrick's The Shining, that's almost incredibly necessary. And so as the author, I mean, getting that person, that dream person involved, would you rather someone that a la Stanley Kubrick would say, hey, I totally get that the theme is about a friendship that can beat Satan. I'm going to go this direction with it. Or would you rather have like, all right, this is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and we're going to hit every beat. Oh, no, I'd rather have someone do something different with it. You know, I mean, look at Carrie, if we're going to talk about Stephen King. I mean, Brian De Palma wasn't a big deal at the time, but he had a vision for that movie. He had stuff he wanted. He had something he wanted to bring to the table. And, you know, and he has really good storytelling sense. So he got the essentials and then, you know, prom night blood, uh, shower scene with the tampons, mother, daughter, kids and outcast and telekinetic like. That's it. Everything else, you know, it's like up for grabs. I mean, and in, and in a lot of ways, I actually, as much as I like the book, Carrie, and I think it's really good, I think also the movie's really, really strong and, and stands really well on its own. You want, I want someone who brings something to the table. I want someone with a vision, but also can tell a story. What's um, fascinating which is too, harder. Yeah, what's fascinating too is that like, you know, we're talking about Stephen King's, uh, you know, distaste for Stanley Kubrick's version and like going to make his own made for tv version and yet now here we are 2018 2019 and he's like on camera going hey everybody um this is my magnum opus the dark tower they finally made a movie of it and i put my stamp of approval on it and then it's a big steaming pile of dog do and everyone hates yeah, it i didn't it's forgotten see it about. actually but yeah um, exactly. And, you know, look at Salem's Lot, right? The Toby Hooper one. I mean, that hit every beat of that book almost. And I find it really lifeless. Like there's cool moments in it. The kid floating outside the window. Barlow looks really good. Hey, there's James Mason. But, um, you know, it, it's and part of it's because it's made for TV and it's shot like it's made for TV. So like rooms just don't have ceilings. Um, and everything looks like a soap <laughs> opera set. But yes. like, it's just I find it really outside some of the performances and um, kind of nostalgia value, I find it a really hard sit. Um, then again, I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I loved Salem's Lot as a kid. I don't think it holds up as an adult for me. Um, but I just, you know, just, just for it, it just hits every beat. It's a little like the Zack Snyder Watchmen. It's like it hits every mm. beat, but it's, it's soulless. Hmm. So um, I, I have one, spoilery very specific question about the most recent book of grady's so it's a, there's gonna be no context if you haven't read the book you're like the hell is he talking about yeah. but i wanted to get this question out now because i don't know how many more times we can ask grady like but what if someone changed something in the movie version of your books we've asked it like four <laughs> times now so so i so i need you grady i need you to to put these down from most likely to least likely an executive producer is going to say, we have to change this. Okay. Mm. Here's your spoiler warning for the Southern book club's guide to slaying vampires. If you'd like to avoid these spoilers, please skip to 21 minutes and seven seconds. Blues obsession with Nazism. Mm -hmm. Slicks rape. Mm -hmm. The cockroach in the ear, which of those three moments or plot lines or, or however scenes 
do you feel is most likely that's gonna that an executive is gonna be like we gotta we can't we gotta do something we can't do that oh yeah blue blues nazi obsession because there's no way in sort of movie shorthand or tv shorthand there's no way to show a kid who does normal kid things without them seeming like a sociopath right you know kids are kids love nazis nazis are super cool i thought nazis were super cool when i was 10 years old but like i mean if you're a jewish kid probably not but like you know if you're like a little protestant kid like i was you're like oh my god they got cool uniforms and they like were winning and then you know then you learn about the holocaust and you're like ah i'll back out of that one but but there's no way it like and you know kids kill animals when they're little i mean i can't tell you how many uh hermit crab holes i threw firecrackers down as a kid or you know you know that kid who's like shoots frogs with their bb gun or stuff like that like but if you show a kid doing that in a movie or tv it's shorthand for this is a budding serial killer true yeah we've we've already made our uh decision as an audience at that point of like ah yeah little hitler got it yeah exactly exactly i think it's actually the preferred term is lil hitler that's true <laughs> yes i apologize <laughs> Um, but, you know, also just really quickly to jump back for something, you know, it's funny uh, in terms of changing things like, you know, so I'm doing the screenplay for Horror Store uh, for the movie adaptation and I'm changing the whole ending. It's just got to work differently on screen, like radically. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm sitting here doing rewrites actually today and through next week on my book that's coming out next year. And it's a book I actually, you know, sold earlier and I did a bunch of rewriting. They love the book. The publisher likes it, but I'm sitting here rewriting huge chunks of it just because there's a better idea or I saw something or something wasn't sitting right. And I finally figured it out. Like I feel like changing stuff. Like I don't get writers who feel like the text is sort of unalterable. Like I'll keep Mm. editing and changing a book until they pry it out of my hands. Right. That's okay. Excellent. That's fair. Yeah. I mean, I don't like something I wrote yesterday. So I'm curious, like (laughs) you're, you're, you're writing a screenplay for something that was published six years ago. So I I would imagine that, that there's a lot where you're like, you know, what if it happened this way instead? Yeah. Well, one of the problems with the novel that I'm rewriting now, and one of the problems with a screenplay that I just I had written a while back that I just had that I had option last year is, um, well, not uh, the novel I'm writing now. That's silly because it's not even out. So no one. But the screenplay, you know, this screenplay, I was looking back in the files, and the first draft of this thing was written in like 2008, and it just got optioned in like 2018. Um, And the producer's like, oh, I love it. I love it. I just have a few minor changes. And he's right. There's a few things in the middle and the end that don't quite come together. But the reason they don't come together is because of stuff in the beginning. Um, It's a structure problem. And I know a lot about structure now. Not everything, but a lot. When I wrote this in 2008, I didn't know what structure was. And so there's problems baked into this screenplay that just have to be changed if it's going to hang together. And to change it, stuff changes that's essential to it. And it's stuff the producer really likes. And they're like, well, we can't change this. And I'm like, well, it has to because it doesn't make any sense. And, And you wind up like it starts out as this tiny problem. And by the end, it's snowballed into this big problem. So we have to lose it. And it's been a really hard battle. And I've I've learned that with a couple of things that probably starting with, I would say, best friend exorcism, maybe a little bit after, maybe we sold our souls. Just my idea for structure and how it works, just because I was doing a lot of screenwriting and stuff, has changed a lot. And stuff before then just needs, if, if someone options it or something, it just needs a lot of work. Um, because it's wonky structurally. 
And sometimes you can get around that with like clever writing or good jokes or like funny stuff or scary stuff. But in the cold light of day, you know, like the fourth or fifth time you read it after you've gotten past the scares and the laughs and you're, it's just not funny to you anymore. It's just not just like, right. Jesus Christ, I got to keep turning these pages. You see the structural problems. And you had mentioned, just to take it back a second ago, the HBO Watchmen. You watched it, right? Yeah, I did. Oh, God. Did you love it? Yeah, I thought it was great. Um, I thought it was a much better adaptation than uh, the Snyder one. And it's so removed from the source material. Truly. Yeah. So again, I think it's all very cyclical. I think that there are huge elements that are like, if you are inspired as a creator by something, by the source of it, by the feeling that you got when you read it, when you read, you know, a moment where Rorschach's psychologist is staring at the dots and 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 just like unable yeah. to sleep at night and and you remember that feeling in your like deep inside you at that moment and it inspires you to create something else i think ultimately that's going to become a better product yeah. than like, and look at the adaptations people like they are so far removed from the source material i mean um the invasion of the body snatchers both the 70s remake the philip kaufman one and the abel ferrara 90s one are really far removed from the original but they're really great jaws is radically different from the book blade runner is radically different from the book aliens is worlds away from alien and again so is the third alien which i really like like the stuff you know um it's rare for me that I see uh, like the innocence, you know, um, the the Deborah Terre movie is an adaptation of Turn of the Screw, but it's so different. Like, it's just there's so the stuff I think works is where they get the essential core and then they just change everything to make it work better as a movie. So I was just going to say, so with that in mind, is that sort of the end all be all solution for horror as a genre right now because we talked you mentioned friday the 13th earlier and i was thinking about the sequels and you know um especially the more recent attempts to kind of like get it some juice again and get people interested again it feels like prepackaged hamburger patties at a certain point yeah and so is, well, is the yeah. solution just like get people who give a shit like is that the is that the magic <laughs> Key yeah, here? I mean, that's that's tough, right? Because I feel like slashers, I, good luck, man, if you're making a slasher, <laughs> because honestly, like I love slashers as much as the next person. Um, but, you know, right now, a guy walking through a public place full of lots of people and killing them one by one. I don't know if you can wring much entertainment value out of that after Columbine and Emmanuel AME and all these like active shooter situations. Like, like how, how is that entertaining for anyone anymore? Mm -hmm. And I don't mean you can't find entertainment in the old ones because you have the era in your head, right? You watch chopping mall and you're like, you're not sitting there going the danger of automation. You're sitting there going, Oh man, those robots are ridiculous. Um, You know, and, so, but I feel like making one now, you're so aware of the tone deafness of the producers mm-hmm. and the director and everyone involved that I can't imagine that working these days. That's fair. You're someone who, as a writer, I feel like does, despite, you know, writing about vampires and, and Satan, that you do 
have your thumb on the pulse of what's going on. I mean, you've talked about how <laughs> that's very generous. Thank you. Well, well, I mean, you've talked about how, you know, originally, uh, you know, Chris was going to be a CH. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. And we sold our souls. And then, you know, after the election, you're like, okay, well I think that a woman's anger is more appropriate right now. And then in vampires, uh, it deals a lot with the sort of almost gaslighting that a lot of the men at the mm-hmm. time were doing with their wives. It almost parallels the like parental uh, disbelief that was happening in my best friend's exorcism. But oh, sure. it's even yeah. but but it's even more disturbing and awful because they're all the same age. It's just men versus women. Um, right. It honestly makes me wonder because you're talking about like, you know, recent shootings and things like that like do you see yourself and maybe you already are working on something but do you see yourself doing something that is much more on the nose in terms of the real modern real life horrors that people are having to deal with nowadays um or is it always going to be hidden behind like a vampire or a shapeshifter or something yeah, I mean, you know, for me, it's about finding the most interesting thing, right? Like, so, you know, the problem is the real life stuff is kind of depressing. And I find myself running out of imagination <laughs> with it. Um, I mean, We Sold Our Souls has some of that sort of like false flag stuff and conspiracy stuff in there. But it also has like soul sucking demons. Um and so, yeah, no, I, I, I feel like everything I do is going to have because I have some kind of like um, horror touchstone in it, like supernatural horror touchstone to some extent. I just find that's a lot more interesting for me. And also that stuff's resonant. Like you want to find things that aren't the problem with being of the moment is often when the moment passes. So does interest in the story. Mm. So for me, it's like. Well, we've always been interested in vampires and what's a way of looking at a vampire that's more interesting to me right now? Or, you know, we've always been interested in possession, but what's an interesting way of looking through possession? You know, my next book's a slasher book. Um, And it's sort of like, what's a way where that makes sense Um, right now? Like, what's an interesting way to do that now that's not just about a slow moving dude with an exotic weapon killing a lot of people in a public space where they're not expecting it? So that actually leads me to a question that I've been thinking about. So as you just pointed out, like you're not going to just print like, Hey, here was the headlines every day for a year. And it's the most horrifying horror story that could ever be (laughs) Um, that there needs to be some kind of supernatural element to it. So my question is conversely, is there a classic monster or a trope that you've already decided you're like, guess what? Never writing a book on that. Like, you know, if it was like, hey, never going to do a book about an evil doll or mummies or whatever. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, Zombies. And and nothing against zombies. I wouldn't write about zombies because I like them too much. Like, I actually have stress dreams about zombies uh, and have been since I was a kid. Uh, Dawn of the Dead is one of my favorite movies. Return of the Living Dead is is like probably the second greatest movie ever made as far as I'm concerned. I love it. And I love them so much that I don't think I could write a good zombie book. So I just never want to. Love Return of the Living Dead. Uh, second, so so what's your first, the greatest movie ever made? Oh, uh, Choi Hark's Peking Opera Blues. It's a Hong Kong movie from 1986. It's just, I don't know if y'all have seen it, but it's amazing. It's hard to see because... 
it's out of it never made it onto blu-ray and i think it's out of print on dvd and even the dvd all the versions i've seen of it on home video the subtitles are wrong and that only matters because um at the end, there's a series of title cards that sort of like give this real punch to the gut. And I've never seen them translated. Uh, and actually, the DVD version, they took it from a print before it went through the optical printer. So the title cards aren't even on it. It just suddenly goes to a freeze frame that runs for an uncomfortably long time, which is when these title cards are supposed to be flashing up on it. So I actually downloaded a fan edit of it that had proper subtitles and title cards in it. But it's it's a really great movie. It's just about three women in Republican era China trying to keep their head above water. Um, and there's like a MacGuffin with a with a secret list that needs to be stolen. And um, it's just got everything in it a movie should have it's got you know friendship love humor action suspense horror it's just really to me the perfect movie so we in the history of our show we've done a lot of comparisons of like old movies and new movies and things that we're missing the mark on and and things along those lines i being someone who is so ingrained in horror now and 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 creating new horror uh, what was what's been the most insulting recommendation you've ever gotten? Like, especially if Return of the Living Dead is the second greatest film ever made. What has been like a suggestion that you've gotten from somebody that you're like, great, never going to talk to you again. You have no idea what I'm into. Oh, I don't know, actually, because um, I, I, I just if someone tells me a suggestion of something that just doesn't click, I kind of forget it right away. Uh, but give me an example, because maybe that'll help me zoom um, in on it. An example Zoom for me is, uh, and I still haven't watched it, so like maybe I'm the one that's missing the mark. But uh, you know, when I was like in college, uh, people would be like, "Oh man, you need to watch Dexter. Like it's so creepy." Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I get a lot of people telling me stuff I should watch on TV, and I just don't watch that much TV. Um, and so I just sort of go, oh, that sounds really cool. I'll totally have to watch that. And then I never do. Just kidding. Um, yeah. Yeah. I just, there's very like, like I, I really love what we do in the shadows. It's great. Yes. Um, but I, I just, there's no, oh, and love Island UK season six. Hell yeah. Awesome. Um, <laughs> that's what I pandemic too. That is so um, specific for someone yeah, who doesn't watch TV. You're like, haven't watched Westworld, but love Island season six, baby pop the popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really, it really held my wife and I sanity together. Um, I know what a scaffolder is now, apparently. And they're very, they're very sexy. Um, but <laughs> Well, it's funny because, you know, so many shows on TV, like my wife loves so much stuff like The Blacklist and all this stuff. And so, like, I'll see some of it when she's watching it. And it's great. It's so serious. It's like they're hacking all the time and they've always got to be somewhere really fast. And like, there's always these like pithy pronouncements and things. And and like everyone seems to work in the same office park outside Atlanta. I mean, it's really terrific. It's just nothing that grabs it all looks a little like criminal minds to me which my sister made me watch an episode of and um and i remember watching it and being like oh my god this is a real tv show i was like blown away that that was a real tv show that was like on season 50 or something any show that has a lot of hacking in it specifically where they say i'm in is uh, yeah oh yeah 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 i'm in really good. and there's no yeah. use of the mouse also, whatsoever yeah and i also love when they're like are you in 
I'm yeah. like, oh, well, I was going to say the, the three, the three standards you have to put and, and, you know, Grady, you may want to take notes. I'm in, are you in? And someone demanding that someone enhance something. That's <laughs> oh, those are your three. That's right out of Blade Runner. I know. I love it. Enhance 321 to 344B. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. that's art. That's um, how you make art. Chick, 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 chick. Yeah, well, you know, it's also kind of amazing. Like, there's so many shows that are so super serious, and they start with, like, we have found the body of a woman that's been raped and murdered. I'm like, wow. Like, I wish that I wish people cared this much about like real dead women in, in real life. Like, that would be amazing. We would have solved all the crimes. Like, well, they care so hard on these shows. I mean, if if real atrocities uh, had David Caruso making a pun and putting on his sunglasses, and then yeah, then I think that the crimes would get You're solved right. a lot faster, probably. Totally. Well, I also love, like, I, I love the idea. Like, I love William Peterson. Uh, speaking of David Caruso, uh, you know, I, Manhunter is one of my favorite movies. I think it's fantastic. Mm. Um, to Live and Die in L.A., he's great in that. Um, William Peterson got me to watch, like, an episode of CSI. And I was there like, oh, my God. I really want a real life CSI show where it's just like, cause most of this forensic science is getting debunked left, right and center these days where it's just like William Peterson going around and testifying in trials and just railroading people into prison, you know, <laughs> like people have to come and clean up after him. That's the darkest timeline. It's just like, no science <laughs> says, no, go to hell. You're going to jail. Like, okay, great. Yeah. Or like, or like 19th century CSI, you know, where it's all the seriousness and all the technology, but they're like measuring people's skulls and being like photographing their, oh, the murderers imprinted on his eyeball. The image of the murderers imprinted on his retina. Well, clearly this, this Negro murdered this man because he has a tiny head and is prone <laughs> to violence because of his race and his hot blood. And now it's like, that, you know, just I was going to say, that's a that's a show I think you could sell. Be like, hmm. Yeah, I'm like, on it. It's too much it's blood the in their name. body. That's what caused them to do it. Like, OK, <laughs> exactly. <great>. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just like CSI blew my mind when I saw it. So are there actors for you? OK, so this is a question that I had kind of piling off of something you said. So you've called Shirley Jackson your true north. And um, mm, yeah, I feel that way about a lot of filmmakers that if I'm like ever off kilter or I kind of like forget, like, what is my voice? Um, that there are definitely filmmakers where I'm like, ah, this I love unconditionally. Oh, like, like Sam Raimi and John Carpenter. Mm. Like, like those would be just a, a couple of examples yeah, okay. where it's like, yes, like, here we are. We're back to normal. Um, are there filmmakers for you that you would also consider like, this is my, this is my Zen. Yeah. Um, I've got, I did a thing last year where I watched, um, every, not every, but all the sound Hitchcock movies in a row. And I really just, even his not great movies, there's so much thought in every frame and every decision that even a, even a sort of hysterical Freudian cack-handed orgy of ridiculous nosity like uh, Marnie is just, I could just watch them all day. Um, Spielberg movies, E.T. and earlier, I think, the ones where people sweated a lot and lived in the suburbs and had like you know, dirty laundry in their living rooms, like, you know, Close Encounters, Sugarland Express, Jaws, uh, Poltergeist, even though that's half Spielberg. Um, I find Howard Hawks is a big one for me. Um, Preston Sturges, uh, Carpenter I love. Um, although I don't love all Carpenter. Like, I find as much as I like Carpenter, 
some of his movies really leave me cold and some I just love ridiculously. Like I love The Thing. Mm -hmm. I love Assault on Precinct 13. I love Prince of Darkness. For reasons discernible only to me, I don't really like They Live that much. It's fine, but it kind of leaves me a little sleepy. Um, Big Trouble in Little China, and I can take it or leave it. Um, But yeah, so um, Ridley Scott and a lot of his... James Cameron's another one that I just like really, really like what he does. Well, I now officially am going to uh, organize the Spielberg filmography into sweaty protagonists or not sweaty protagonists. Now yeah. that's the new way to well, you know, organize that. You look at that great scene in Close Encounters where Richard Dreyfus is sitting in the shower freaking out and his kids like slamming the door over and over again going, shut up, you big baby. I hate you. Like you rarely find something that emotionally volatile in later Spielberg, you know, like True. like post E.T. Spielberg. Um, I mean, out of every post-E.T. Spielberg movie, I could take Catch Me If You Can and leave the rest. Mm. Yeah, I mean, talking about later Spielberg, I mean, one of his most recent films was Ready Player One, um, yeah. which uh, would I would I be taking a shot in the dark to say that that would fall under the category of 80s nostalgia that you hate? Yeah, well, it's funny, too. Like, I almost saw that movie because I was like, I so wanted to see the Overlook Hotel stuff because I love that idea. Mm. I almost saw Dr. Sleep because of the Overlook Hotel stuff. I love that idea. I love that idea of taking a set and recreating and going back into an existing movie. That is so freaking cool. But then I was just like, do I really want to sit there and watch this? No, I'm good. Came to my senses. Okay, let's let's rank some some movies here in terms of... Okay, so to, to fill in the blanks here... Um, yeah, I love ranking. Let's do it. Yeah, so... Uh, Grady has mentioned um, that there is a very much a form of cheap nostalgia that's used by a lot of modern properties where it's like throw some synth wave on it and some neon mm. colors and you've got 80s um, and it feels just very cheap and pandery. And so I'm going to I'm going to drop some properties here for you shows movies um, and you can rank them on a scale of radical to gag me with a spoon in terms of all right how I was uh, gonna I was gonna rank them on uh, at what order do you catapult them into the sun but that's that's, <laughs> that's true yeah um, okay so let's start with an easy one uh, stranger things yeah gag me with a spoon yeah. <laughs> stranger things is like it's the Stranger Things is such a fifties show. It feels like watching an episode of Lassie. I only saw the first season, but it's like that girl Eleven is basically Lassie. I mean, they just walk around the woods going Eleven, Eleven, and then she shows up out of the blue and saves Timmy when he falls down the well. It's it was really. I thought the kids were adorable, and I love the set design. Winona Ryder, good to see her. I like the mythology, but I was just like, oh. and then at the end, that's what really hacked me off. At the end, she kills all these things. There's all these dead bodies lying around, and then they all just disappear, and she disappears too. It's like, oh, problem solved. Yeah, the, the sorry, I won't clean go up on so much happened. with all these. No, this is no. Are you kidding me? We dunked on the It remake. Now we're dunking on Stranger Things. This is going to be the edgiest podcast that's ever been. Yeah, we're a very I am we're the only person yeah. allowed to market 80s nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> Me alone. <laughs> only I can make it look like a VHS thing. It all thing. sucks except mine. <laughs> um, okay, did you watch Glow on Netflix, the wrestling show? Yeah, I actually had fun with it. It um 
I I wish I actually the parts of it I liked the least were the nostalgic parts. I actually thought the relationship between the women and the stuff about television broadcasting and early cable days was really a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, I totally get it's not good, but I liked it. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Hey, that, you know, slap it on the box. If we're if we're recommending reality shows on this podcast, then we I think that's it's not that we can acknowledge like something can be bad and still enjoyed. Um, so okay, so then we've already talked about it chapter one. But what's interesting is like Stranger Things. I don't know that it chapter one would have necessarily happened without Stranger Things because I think that's what reminded mm, yeah. all of the cigar smoking Hollywood executives that like the kids out there they love the eighties. They don't know what it is, but they love it. Yeah. Well, and there's so many ways to do nostalgia right. Like, look at Stand By Me. I mean, Stand By Me is a fabulous way to do... I mean, it's that 50s nostalgia. You know, it's terrific. Um, uh, American Graffiti, I think, does nostalgia right. Um, I think it could be a little darker at the end. Dazed and Confused, I think, is a great take on doing nostalgia right. It's really possible to do. All right, so I'm, I'm beginning to get an understanding of your barometer of this, but let's let's hit a few more. Okay, so yeah. Tron Legacy. Didn't see it. Okay, all right, fair enough. I mean, it's a sequel ultimately, so it's probably measured differently uh, anyways. Did you see Atomic Blonde? No. This okay. has been my favorite part so far. Is, <laughs> Tien is, says a movie no, and Grady yeah, says I haven't anytime, seen it. <laughs> anytime, anytime that there's no resolution for you, it's a little Christmas in my heart. But also that, again, the, building the co-host. IMDb of Grady Hendrix of, you know, Return of Living Dead, number two of all time, sweaty Spielberg movies is where it's at. Not wasting my time on Atomic Blonde and Tron Legacy. Like, yes, <laughs> this man knows what he's talking about. <laughs> okay, but uh, I all appreciate right. so, that. So here's one. All right, so Donnie Darko. You know, I saw that a long time ago, and it really bored my tits off. There you go. Um, <laughs> and, and I should probably rewatch it, because enough people I know who really seem to have it together really love it a lot and so i should probably watch it but a, chances of me rewatching something is low sure okay um and then i can guess this one but like the guardians of the galaxy films oh i like them i thought they were fun oh okay so even yeah, yeah. you know the all right um and then this is a perfect one to end on hot tub time machine oh my god i actually thought it was not as funny as people thought it was but it was think I was drinking when I watched it and I watched it on video and I passed out before the end. But what I saw, I really liked. I thought it was fun. So, so let me ask this then. So what is the recipe then? Like what's the balance of like nostalgia for nostalgia's sake and using it as an actual tool to tell a better story? Because I feel like we're not, we're not off kilter here. Like, especially like by season three of stranger things, they're just like throwing things at the screen. They're like, I don't know, perfect strength. Look at Balky. There he is. Remember that? <laughs> like, oh, Mr. Bucket. Remember Mr. Bucket? There you go. <laughs> like, it's 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 not really. There's not really any heart there if there was any in the first place. So what? Yeah. How do you how do you make that work? Like, how do you like stand by well, me I and think- these other examples? How what are they doing that so many miss completely? I think one of the things is, and I thought it's something that actually Stranger Things was getting close to in the first season, and then it kind of seemed to lose interest in it towards the end. But this idea that like being a kid is really scary, like people just disappear, like you have no control over your own life, like things you're doing now could destroy 
everything in your future. Like that's what teachers tell you over and over. This is going to be part of your permanent record, all this stuff. And so I feel like, you know, you've got to get that sense of fear. in. And I feel like the thing that like stand by me did really well is yes, it has the like relentless. And when I watch that movie now, the soundtrack drives me nuts because it's been so overexposed. You just feel mugged by it. You know, it's like every day it's getting closer. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, chill out. I don't want to hear the 50 soundtrack, but they take the kids so seriously like river phoenix's monologue i mean it's the same with the breakfast club right i mean that wasn't a nostalgia piece when it was made but the kids are taken seriously on their own terms and and sometimes they're they take themselves too seriously but like you know river phoenix's monologue and that is great and the way they frame it as these kids grow up and and die basically get stabbed to death at mcdonald's um you know it's just and the story it's based on is even darker than that it's just like this idea of these aren't cartoon characters, they're actual people. And let's sort of scrape away some of the like fun stuff and see what's actually there. I mean, it's something Dazed and Confused does really well, where even the like, they take all these sort of stereotypes. Oh, it's the bitchy cheerleader. It's the jock. And by the end of it, everyone's had kind of a moment where you see them unexpectedly and you sort of feel like, yeah, that's what people feel like. Hmm. So um, we had promised we we were going to try and pepper in some actual questions about your book, which I do have um, about a few of your books. Who cares? Uh, (laughs) Who cares? Well, you Um, know, and can I just jump onto something really quickly? Sure, sure, sure. One of the things I hate, hate, hate in movies, and maybe this is why I'm so cranky, is reducing people to cartoons. Like you see it in the John Wick movies. Like I liked the first one i saw the second one on an airplane it was fine but there's a moment where it's just like oh my god punchy 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 it's just like you know it's just he's not a person and and i really like seeing people in movies it's why i love jaws but like really don't have much time for hook like you know, like Roy Scheider's a person you get to breathe. And I feel like reducing people to a handful of sort of like heroic tropes and moments. And, and I can totally be accused of doing this in my books um, because I love those moments. They're fun. They're gratifying. And like one of the things you have to do is get beyond that and, and do something a little better or try to at least, and maybe die trying. Um, you know, and that's the struggle I'm having rewriting the book I'm working on now is getting these characters beyond their their sort of like fun moments and like trying to take them on their own terms and treat them as people. Well, uh, so yeah, that's why I'm so cranky. Reducing just- a character to a cartoon. That is why my least favorite movie is Who Framed Roger Rabbit, because what they did to Christopher Lloyd when they rolled him <laughs> over him with a steamroller and reduced him to a cartoon. It's a war crime. I, <laughs> that's right. I mentioned it earlier. Now on the number one of my list of things that I want to catapult in the sun, this show. Um, no, but what I was going to say was, Grady, you make an excellent point, and I think this ties back to what we were talking about earlier with like the slasher genre. I feel like a lot of those films fell off very quickly because they stopped taking time to build up at least not even like deep characters necessarily, but just ones that like stood out like in any, in yeah. any regard, like when they, like they Friday the 13th, even the first one, a lot of those camp, you know, counselors and stuff like that are still somewhat kind of just like a general trope, but we did get to kind of get to know some of them a little bit 
So when the monster shows up, it means something. Um, yeah. And over time, well, it just kind of became massacre. like, okay, here's, you know, bag of blood number one that will be stabbed. And yeah. here's bag of blood number two. It's going to get chopped in half. That's going to be neat. Um, and even I think John Carpenter's The Thing, which I'm looking at my VHS copy now because I'm that kind of douchebag, falls is it kind of falls in between because like we get to know McCready as our main character very well. And because of the outer context of, well, they're all isolated. We're kind of given nice flourishes of everybody. And that mm-hmm. I think helps to build a more compelling story as opposed to like, Hey, they're all here. Uh, okay. Uh, like, I feel like the, um, uh, the prequel to the thing kind of fell apart because of that, where they were like, We've got X number of people here. Yes. Do we get to know them at all? Are they going to leave a lasting mark? There's 10 of them. Okay, great. So yeah. I feel like. Well, you know, it's a little like I felt about the Halloween remake. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like the fact that they sort of like it had this sort of shaggy David Gordon Green quality to it. Like those cops sitting in the car talking about a Bond me. Um, or, you know, the babysitter and her kid and like their genuine sort of rapport or when the kid like is in the backyard with the motion detector light and he's like, oh, dude, sorry, man. I'll like totally get out of your yard. Like they're just these little shaggy dog moments in that movie that were like, they felt really real. And for me, really elevated it. Yeah. Even, even Um, when things like supernatural or something otherworldly happens, which is completely unreasonable to have reasonableness as our canvas i think is what really is going to make it stand out and not just like either a everyone's a cartoon character or you know like you said everyone's taking themselves too seriously including the monster there there, i feel like there's a medium somewhere yeah well you know it's interesting right like one of the things that really annoys me is this end of the world the whole thing there's never been a a deeper moment than what i just said (laughs) mic drop um but it's saying it's this moment that it's a trope that really annoys me, which is that the second there's a disaster, everyone starts fighting over who's allowed in the bunker and, you know, I'll leave them out, you know, or I'm going to kill you over this can of beans. And it's like time after time after time after time, studies show that in disaster situations, people become more altruistic and actually again and again help people at the expense of danger to their own lives. And it's one of the things you see in um, Return of the Living Dead, when people are trying to save each other. Um, you see it in Dawn of the Dead. Um, you know, when people are working together. You see it a little bit in Night of the Living Dead when Dwayne uh Johnson is trying to save or trying to save Barbara, or Ben, I guess, is trying to save Barbara for no good reason except she's another human being. Like, and then you don't see it so much in Day of the Dead, really, where it's just people yelling at each other all mm-hmm. the time. You don't see it so much in like any zombie movie of the last like 10 years, really. Um, where as much as I like 28 days later, I'm like, Oh God, now they meet soldiers. And of course the first day we're going to start a breeding farm. I'm like, Oh Jesus, this doesn't feel like people to me. Um, yeah. First of all, I don't know if you're a big like video game person at all, but, uh, I'm not, I got rid of my system years ago because I just was playing too much. That's fair. Um, yeah. Oh, I was but really, I, I mean, I was really I hoping I mean, that the reason was like couldn't get past the boss level, so I threw it out a moving car. Like very exactly. responsible. Nice. That's a, a fantastic reason to get rid of a console. I should do the same thing if I wanted to be more productive. But anyhow, um, specifically the trope that you talked about, I feel like apocalyptic video games are the absolute worst at that because they have to meet like a quota. 
that they're like, we're going to allow the gamer to shoot X amount of people. And they don't want it to mm-hmm. just be zombies, or if it's not zombies, whatever, the whole time. So they're like, every survivor hates you and wants to kill you. Every yeah. single one you meet. If you see somebody, assume that they want to kill you. Yeah. That's a, well, you know, it's funny. I always really liked, because I was a big Resident Evil buff, and I always liked the escort missions in Resident Evil, because it was fun to have a, like, buddy in the game that you could, like, protect. So you're the only person in the world that likes escort missions. <laughs> I was going to say, we're dunking on in Chapter 2, Stranger <laughs> Things, and escort mission mechanics, best part of video games. There is this- nobody edgier than Grady Hendrix. I defy you to find someone edgier. Everyone has stopped listening at this point. Yes. I've got a I've got a checklist. I'm gonna I'm gonna we're gonna be shocked by the time this is over. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions about your books. Damn it! Okay. I know you don't want to talk about them. All right. So my best friend's exorcism. Um, obviously, possessions have been done a lot of different ways over many different years through many different sources of media. How did you land on the way in which Gretchen was her possession was going to manifest? Oh, because, you know, it's like, it just makes sense, right? If you're like exorcism, exor- possession's gross. Like you look at Regan in The Exorcist, it's like she's basically getting zits and, you know, got a bloody vagina and like she's growing like oozy shit all over her body. She's clearly going through puberty. Like, you know, and so it's like, oh, yeah, wow, that makes a lot of sense. That kind of like fear of the physical, you know, it really is like, oh, that's a possession. You know, and also the behavior swings, all that stuff. It's like, oh, you're turning into another person. It's like, I don't know you anymore because I'm possessed by a demon or I'm 15. Mm, Okay. I think that generally uh, America is very, very scared and disturbed by uh, female puberty. Also with the urban legend of poltergeist being linked to girls going through puberty. So, well, um, you know, it's it's one of it's one of the reasons I think Firestarter is so underrated as a Stephen King book. It's like. People make fun of King for, you know, he doesn't really write about sex. I'm like, oh, have you read Firestarter? I mean, it's about a little girl who's being groomed by a dude who wants to kill her in an erotic fashion. She has dreams about riding horses naked. She can start fires with her mind. And people keep going, it's the most powerful force in the universe. If she unleashed the force inside of her, it could crack the planet in half. And it ends with her, like, standing on a CIA compound with all these dudes who want to control her blowing them up with fireballs and like while wild horses run out of this stable behind her i'm like jesus christ it's like if i was gonna say to someone i want you to airbrush female puberty on the side of my van they would just do the final scene of Firestarter. <laughs> which who hasn't wanted that on a van at some point in their lives mm, yes i mean i thought that was one of the top three most requested airbrush panels <laughs> besides woman riding demon and giant skeletal hooded death holding the planet in his hand yeah. and dragon fighting tiger um uh, okay so um uh, yeah, wow, that, Dragon Fighting Tiger. I just said, yeah, like that was nothing. Wow, yeah, I haven't yeah. seen that one. It's <laughs> hot stuff. Um, so, yeah, actually, Stephen King, the thing about his sex scenes is they're always uh, just sort of seemingly out of nowhere. It'll be like Pet Cemetery, and then there's like a shower blowjob scene. I'm like, what? Did I miss a page? Um, but, oh, God, you're right. I forgot about that scene. Yeah. yeah but, um, okay, one more book question. So you've talked about mm. how... Um, you wish that as a trope, Native American hauntings would come back. Uh, was that a consideration uh, for you at all as the source of the Orse haunting before you settled on the beehive? No. And actually, it's a bummer. I just, um, I didn't. Um, 
But I actually wrote a now discarded version of the opening of Horror Store the movie. That's basically like the 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 people who are going to build Orsk, like looking at sites in the city. Um, and, and, and the, the mayor's like, or the head of the chamber of commerce is like, oh, you, you don't want to build here. Um, there was a prison here and then it flooded and everyone died. And they're like, no, we want to build here. He's like, yeah, but after that, they build an orphanage here and then it burned down (laughs) and all the orphans died. He's like, yeah, we want to build here. And they're like, well, before that it was a native American burial mound. No, we want to build here. Like, and after that there was a big circus and it burned down and all the clowns died. He's like, we want to build here. And so when they're building it it just shows and they dig up like a creepy charred like children's doll like they, a, you know a clown bit of a clown costume a native american artifact and it's haunted by all of them um it's a shame it that really that was funny. discarded because as you uh, with you describing uh, the experience of horror store especially in movie version as being on a haunted house like strap in the seat push open the doors um this is going to be a haunted attraction that's beautiful in my opinion but yeah well you know it's when you said three spooky chums earlier i could think all i could think was the ghost on the haunted mansion ride trying to hitch a ride okay they'll follow you home for sure okay so um unless my co-host zach has any further questions um i think it may be time to tell you grady about the real reason that we've brought you here zach did you have anything else uh who's worse the the actual devil or Carter Campbell, a.k.a. a real rap bastard? Hmm. I think Carter Campbell. There you go. Okay. The man knows his own mm. work. The man, if you read the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, you will agree with me completely on that assessment. Okay. Well, um, uh, Grady, the reason that we brought you here, um, that we wanted to have um, an author of some renown on our show is that, well, Zach and I are somewhat of writers ourselves, and we thought maybe if we read you excerpts from pieces that we've written um, over the time, I mean, these have taken a long time to write, trust me, a long time, um, I was hoping maybe you'd be able to provide some feedback, some uh, criticism, hey, we can take it, you know, we got thick skin, um, so if you've got just a moment here, I'd be happy to read you uh, a piece from mine, and then Zach could read uh, his own work. Would that be all right? Yeah, I mean, you've wasted so many moments of mine so far. What's one more? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's Good. That's, that's my that's motto. The attitude. Okay. That's the audience. All right. So mine is actually going to be uh, it's '80s nostalgia done right. It is true blue. It's not done for the sake of you know pandering to anybody. It's it's real, authentic '80s nostalgia. So, mm. uh, okay. Mm. Tom's navy blue Sony Walkman fell out of his pocket, crashing to the sidewalk and exploding into a mess of tape and sharp plastic. Aw man, now how am I going to listen to that new radical track from Duran Duran? He whined as he lifted the first big hunk of musical machinery, his carefully placed ALF sticker now scratched to hell. As Tom scooped up the pieces, the sound of wheels rolling quickly over asphalt grabbed his attention. Zack, his best friend, was skateboarding towards Tom's direction at a rapid pace. He was wearing his usual attire, bright pink Ocean Pacific short shorts that rode up just below his ass and hugged his bulge just so. His midriff shirt was neon green with a stark blue Knight Rider logo splashed across the front. His sweaty treasure trail glistened in the afternoon sunlight. Whoa, bogus concert ender, Zack belted as he kicked flipped off his board, which had the 
the Masters of the Universe on the bottom of it, and landed on his Air Jordans, brushing his fresh perm off of his shoulders. Ditch the denim today, Tommy. We're going to be late for Jazzercise. Maybe we can hit up the arcade after and play a few games of that tubular new cabinet Frogger. I heard Tony Reagan already set the high score, and no one can touch it. Gag me with a spoon. I hate video games, shot back Tom. All I care about is getting fit so I can rock the new Speedo I just bought down by the beach for the summer. Dude, Tommy boy, what's your damage? Maybe a little puff of this reefer will chill you out. Hey, hey, Zach, come on. You heard what the after-school special said. Just say no. Whatever, nerd. Come on, we're gonna be late. In Jazzercise class, Zach was a star. Totally Zeke, the bot of a champion. In a class that was a sea of slender wannabes, he was a barely legal teenage Hulk Hogan. He bent and twirled in ways I could never imagine. I mean, Tom could never imagine. He jumped and ducked, twisted and dropped. His body was like a Rubik's Cube, changing and rearranging until every side of it lined up beautifully. I, I mean, Tom couldn't take his eyes off of him. Just when Tom... I mean, I couldn't be able to take any more. He produced a Royal X Probe A-Class Keytar, seemingly from nowhere, and ground out a sweet synth riff. It was too much for me. I couldn't hold it in any longer. I, I felt a swelling. <coughs> and, uh, um, mm. Zach, sorry, you had a, a problem? Tian, what the hell is this? This isn't scary. This is the scariest thing of all. This is coming to terms with my true feelings. Okay, well, this is great. Um... Uh, Grady, any uh, feedback on on that um, very uncomfortable piece of literature? Sorry, 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 sorry. My wife texted me. It's just texting. Do um, no, it was great. Okay, was there another one? Yes, yes. I uh, a little more um, uh, uh, classically structured, let's say. Yeah, sorry, know. sorry. I thought it was something important, but she was just asking me um, if I knew where her other set of keys were but then she found them anyways what no, yeah. perfect no that's great no, uh, yeah 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 uh, that's fine excellent. i mean I, I i understand we'll send you the write-up it's fine all right so here's mine <clears throat> no, you need to do that that's cool okay i heard most of it uh, it was late and i was tucking into bed post daily fucking from my job i hate a bore but rest now let me think no more i kiss my wife we settle in Against the pillows marked her and him, and say good night, sweet dreams, adieu, until she turns a moment, you. The last three nights you've woken me with a startle just past three, due to a loud and thunderous fart. I interrupt, please wait, I start. These farts you mention I have not heard, and up till now you've not passed word of any disturbance from my guests, so rest now. I shall silence my ass. I hope you're right, she grinned with menace, cause I would hate to have to end this over a fart that's just plain silly. So cover up, it's awfully chilly. As she wrapped herself in sheets, I found a quick and quiet retreat, out to the kitchen to down some pills for soothing stomach aches and ills. I then returned to bed, elated, certain I wouldn't, flatuated and awaken my precious darling wife, my shining star, my light of life. Rest at last, I closed my eyes and fell to sleep amid the cries of far-off creatures in the trees. Crickets, frogs, otters, bees? I don't, I, I don't know animals. But in the thick... Is there, is there a lot more of this? Yeah, uh, actually, there's two and a half more pages more of this, yeah. Okay, yeah, it's cool. 
Okay. But in the thick of a pleasant dream featuring Christina Ricci and whipped cream, I was awoken by a sound that sounded like a wounded hound. The noise was quick, a meaty slam, like a trumpet filled with deli ham. But as I listened, expecting more, it dawned on me. The abject horror, like a knife and deep it cut, I knew that sound came from my butt and it go, it, it continues on for a great length here, but I'll, let me jump yeah, to I'll the, say. let me jump to the end here. Um, uh, uh, yes. Okay. Here we go. <laughs> but to my terrified displeasure, I heard her shriek beyond all measure. Have you just looked at the time? You sealed your fate much like mine. Your butthole has disturbed my sleep. So now I'll drag you to the deep. I turned to her, confused and shocked, to see her jaw start to unlock. Her mouth grew wide, wider than human, showing rows of teeth, more than a few. Then her back arched up high, skin stretched by her spine, and her hands and feet grew much bigger than mine. Then her transformation complete, she grabbed me at claws at my feet she slithered and slid onto the floor and i caught one more glimpse of her in horror i fell back in shock paralyzed with fear and i heard her climb to the wall then whisper in ear you should have never farted tonight my love as she pierced through my chest with a tail from above i call that story the telltale fart it's based on a true happening it's pretty great um so we had said an hour Mm -hmm. we're pretty much past that and this has been a tough Six and a half minutes. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Past that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, cool. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I, oh, 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 okay. Well, he uh, hung up. Okay. Well, uh, I, you know, I'm gonna DM uh, Mr. Hendricks on his uh, Twitter account uh, at Grady underscore Hendricks. I'm gonna go ahead and DM him uh, both the of full, our stories, the full yeah, transcripts. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I want to make sure that he gets all of that because I mean, like he said, he's a little distracted, and I understand he's a busy guy. I get that. So, yeah. um, anyway, um, Grady Hendricks, ladies and gentlemen, um, if you would like to check out any of his books, they're available wherever books are sold. Uh, his newest, The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, is fabulous. I highly recommend it. Take us out, Zach. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, subscribing, sharing. Uh, merchandise on fullygimmick.com and for TN Guignol I'm Zach Romero until next time continue circulating the tapes <laughs>